You're listening to Ship History Radio from the Steamship Historical Society of America. Through recording, preserving, and educating, our mission is to share the impact of engine-powered vessels, their crews, and their passengers with future generations. To learn more about our organization, visit us online at sshsa.org. My name is Brian Lucier, and I handle membership and public outreach for SSHSA. On this episode, we will begin an occasional series of interviews with our Power Ships writers, beginning with Eric Pearson, who is the author of this month's cover story on the Merchant Marine in World War II. We hope you enjoy it. Thank you for joining us, Eric. Why don't you start by telling us a little bit about when and uh, why you decided to join SSHSA? Actually, um, after I retired, I obtained a master's degree in history, and I've always been interested in the Merchant Marine because my dad was in the Merchant Marine. I was looking for a journal, a maritime journal, where I could possibly get a paper published. And there's not that many maritime journals out there. Actually, there's not a whole lot of material about the Merchant Marine. There's a lot of books, historical books written about, uh, in World War II specifically, about the Navy, you know, Naval Aviation, Army Air Corps, the Army, the Marines, the Coast Guard, but uh, there's hardly been anything written about the Merchant Marine. So anyway, I was looking for a maritime journal and I came across Power Ships and I enjoyed reading it because of the, the different types of articles in the magazine. William Miller's uh, articles on uh, the uh, luxury liners that went into New York in the 50s during the height of, you know, luxury liner service. That was really interesting. Terry Tilton's articles on uh, like the Delta line ships. He did an in-depth analysis of those. I, I, I kind of identified with these these men, these writers. So that kind of perked my interest in submitting a paper to uh, Power Ships. Regular readers might recognize your names from a couple of, I would say, unusual articles talking about NASA, not only the recovery of the uh, the shuttle booster rockets and some ships that were used to, to kind of uh, configure and, and track the uh, satellites that were in space and help out with the moon mission. So tell me a little bit about your professional experience. I think a lot of people would like to hear about that. Well, I retired as a computer programmer at NASA. I uh, started out in the early 70s uh, working as a computer operator for an oil exploration company that did seismic uh, data processing. I was there for a couple of years, and I, I was going back to school and, and taking computer programming classes and computer science classes. And this oil exploration company, uh, Teledyne Incorporated in Houston, and I was there for two years, and then I got a programming position at uh, Prudential Life Insurance Company as a business programmer. So I was there for two years when an opportunity came up uh, with a company called Computer Sciences Corporation that had a contract with NASA to do their financial computer uh, applications in support of that. And this was right at the beginning of the space shuttle program. So uh, I was at the right place at the right time, more or less. And I spent 18 years working uh, with uh, uh, Computer Sciences Corporation, 
supporting NASA's uh, financial, their basic accounting systems, general ledger, payroll, stuff like that. And then um, an opportunity came up to work with uh, NASA's aircraft operations at Ellington Field, which is near Johnson Space Center. I joined them and we did web application support for, um, uh, well, aircraft logistics, uh, aircraft maintenance, flight scheduling. So I was kind of involved with some of those aspects of, of that. Uh, and then I uh, retired in 2014, but I've always been interested in history. So I was taking history classes at night. I was always going to school. It seemed like I was always taking classes in something that I interested me. So after I retired, I started doing research and writing papers. And I was just really interested in the Merchant Marine because of my dad. So that's basically my background is mostly in computers. And that's maybe a little different to some of your readers thinking that, you know, this is I'd have more of a merchant marine background. But because of my dad, I, I, I was exposed to a lot of the conditions that he worked in and and how he got to where he was at. And one of the reasons that we uh, brought you on board today was because you have the cover article in the newest issue of Power Ships, which is out now. It's covering the Merchant Marine. So kind of jumping back a little bit to something you said a little while ago, that there's not much out there written about the Merchant Marine. Why do you think that is? Well, I think for one thing, a lot of people don't even know that much about the Merchant Marine. Uh, I've talked to people who have thought that it was part of the Marine Corps or um, uh, didn't realize that they were placed in harm's way. I was thinking about my dad's past when he first started going to sea in 1936, right out of high school. My grandfather was from Norway and he was a, a sailing ship captain in settled in Louisiana, uh, southern Louisiana. My dad grew up there, and but he went to sea right out of high school. And then uh, he had already been at sea for four or five years when the war came along. And so I think that he was on ships that were in combat zones that were, you know, just as dangerous as anything that the Army or the Navy or any of the military uh, services were placed in. And I think people weren't aware of that. So I think that's why a lot of there hasn't been a lot written about the Merchant Marine because of that. They didn't think they were on the front lines and they actually were. Yeah, I mean, when you get into it and, and really start reading into a lot of this, you see them, you know, as part of a convoy and, and really putting themselves out there, you know, head to head with the German U-boats that were all over the Atlantic. And in many cases, I mean, would you agree, lightly armored ships compared to, you know, what their, uh, their companions in the, in the Navy had? Yeah, I mean, at the beginning of the war, uh, like my dad took a, uh, he was a able seaman on a World War I cargo ship. Uh, it was a, a Hog Islander. And uh, he was delivering military supplies and aircraft to the American volunteer group in Rangoon. They got word of the Pearl Harbor attack when they were in the middle of the Indian Ocean en route to Rangoon. Uh, and they had these huge American flags painted on the hull of the ship, which would make them a sitting target. So they um, 
mixed all their black and white paint together and camouflaged the ship. But, you know, he was, he was there when the Japanese bombed Rangoon. Uh, then later, uh, he made a trip from the United States to uh, Australia and then up to New Guinea, Port Moresby, and then to Buna, which was right during the, that period of time when the Japanese were bombing Buna and occupied North, uh, New Guinea. And then um, uh, he was in convoys in the North Atlantic, and he was never torpedoed, but he saw ships that were. The most frustrating part for him was that they couldn't stop to pick up survivors in lifeboats because they would be a target because the U-boats were sitting around just waiting for anybody to slow down. They were also in harm's way, not only from U-boats, but from kamikaze attacks in the Pacific, even uh, German bombers. And there was all kinds of threats against merchant ships. I think uh, people don't realize also that a lot of these convoys were in uh, difficult weather conditions like the trips to Murmansk in Russia, and they were uh, encountering heavy, heavy ice and snow and having to, you know, battle the weather elements in addition to German U-boats and German bombers. They were placed in harm's way quite a, quite a bit. In addition to obviously these, these physical and, and operational challenges, one of the interesting things that I uh, found in your article were, was the amount of criticism that they were getting, even from within other members of the armed forces. Can you talk a little bit about you know what they were facing, you know, from their uh, essentially their coworkers? Yeah, it was um, a lot of there was a perception that the merchant mariners were draft dodgers, and that they weren't stepping up and enlisting. Well, a lot of a lot of people don't realize that the merchant mariners were all volunteers and they were signing up to go on ships that were going into war zones. I mean, they, they were prime targets for German U-boats. I don't think you can really classify them as a draft dodger for someone who's volunteering to go in harm's way. A lot of these men were older men. They were senior citizens. They had, some of them had retired and had come back to uh, go to sea to uh, support the country. So I think there was a perception of them being draft dodgers, which wasn't true. Some, some um, criticism about them being communist sympathizers. I think that originated from one of the maritime unions. I think it was the national maritime union NMU that, uh, had some communist leanings, but most of the sailors were not communist. But it also, there was a, a perception that the merchant manners were paid more than the military. In certain situations, they were in, they did get bonuses, but they've got bonuses because they were going into war zones and they were paid a little extra because of that. But a merchant seaman of a typical rating with a Navy seaman they might have made a little bit more, but you have to remember too that the merchant seamen had to pay for their own clothing, their own uniforms. Um, they were only paid when they were on the ship. Where in the military, you know, uh, you were paid 
if you were on the ship or not, uh, or if you were, you know, uh, in direct support of what your mission was, uh, you were still paid regardless. But if a merchant mariner ship was torpedoed and sunk, well, he wasn't being paid. I mean, it, it was uh, as soon as he got the abandoned ship notification, then he was off the he was off pay. They would be uh, even when they went into port. If you left the ship and went on liberty, well, that was you know you're not getting paid for that. As soon as you left that ship, you know the clock stopped. Uh, so I I think there's a lot of other uh, things that uh, people weren't aware of uh, that they thought that they were being paid more, you know, when they really weren't. So there's there's other considerations that they had to take in, into play there. Yeah, that's that's just mind-boggling to me that uh, you can be out there risking your life on a ship, get torpedoed, and, you know, essentially be in the water and, oh, by the way, you're not getting paid anymore. Yeah, it's, 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 um, but a, a lot of these men were taken prisoner uh, as POWs. Uh, I think there was an incident where a, a Japanese submarine had torpedoed a merchant ship and the survivors, they lashed down on the submarine and they submerged the sub and all the men drowned. It, it was uh, brutal conditions. You know, when they were a POW, they weren't paid. So it was pretty tough. And, and you talk about the deaths, and, and I think that's really an important point that, you know, maybe not a lot of people realize is that the merchant marine died at a higher percentage than any other branch of the military throughout the war, correct? Yeah, it was um, a war shipping administration records that indicated the U.S. merchant marine suffered the highest casualty rate of any service in World War II. I, it was one out of every 26 U.S. merchant mariners were killed. In comparison to the other military branches, the Marine Corps had one in 33, the Army had one in 48, the Navy had one in 114, the Coast Guard had one in 421. And even before uh, the Pearl Harbor attack and the United States was officially at war, 240 merchant mariners had already died as a result of being torpedoed by German U-boats. It's hard to understand that we were almost like officially, unofficially at war before Pearl Harbor, because there were accounts of German U-boats sinking merchant ships that had the American, they were, they knew they were American ships and we were officially neutral at that time. But uh, these merchant seamen were killed. And I think it was stated at the end of the war, uh, not over 9,500 seamen had died, had perished, either from being in prisoner of war camps, died from their wounds, or they perished at sea. And it was a total of 1,554 ships that were sunk due to war conditions. So, um, yeah, there were, there were a lot of merchant seamen that lost their lives during the war at a rate higher than the other services. We've touched on a lot of the conditions that they faced, you know, the physical conditions, the mental conditions, in terms of the criticisms that they received. When they got home, didn't exactly get the hero's welcome that they perhaps deserved. No, 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 they didn't. It's another unfortunate thing. At the end of the war, President Roosevelt 
uh, had signed the um, GI Bill before he died uh, and had wanted Congress to make sure that merchant mariners were also included in this. And unfortunately, at the end of the war, Congress, you know, they, after FDR's death, they, they turned a blind eye to what his wishes were. And um, the merchant mariners weren't included in the GI Bill. And that's unfortunate because they, they would have had low-cost housing loans, the, the, you know, the other benefits from the GI Bill, um, education opportunities, health and life insurance opportunities. Yeah, it's at the end of the war, they were kind of, they were just not really included like the rest of the military veterans were. Even in Korea, because they were considered, you know, 1A, they were uh, subject to the draft even during Korea because they were not considered veterans. So there are a lot of merchant mariners were um, drafted, served in the military in Korea even though they had served in World War II in hostile conditions. So, yeah, it, it was unfortunate that a lot of these men were kind of disregarded in that respect. Yeah, and, you know, another reason that this all kind of tied together well as far as the, the timing of this interview is that uh, back in November, we were lucky enough to host an event here for one of our local members, an SSHSA member, his name is Harry Olson. Uh, you may have seen we had a, a brief thing in PowerShips, and, and we've uh, pushed out a couple of e-blasts about it as well. But he was a uh, World War II merchant mariner who recently received the Congressional Gold Medal, which was thanks to a 2020 bill that uh, came around that finally decided to recognize this class of mariners. And I know you touched on this in your article, as well as a lot of other attempts to uh, to kind of make right what wasn't done in the past. What do you think going forward? I mean, you know, we're, we're obviously seeing this, this class of people shrinking. I mean, they're all in their 90s. And, and it's a shame that so many haven't been able to take advantage of, of any kind of benefit. In your opinion, what would make this right? Uh, I know that there's been um, some, some congressmen that have tried to introduce legislation to compensate the mariners with like um, in the beginning, it was like a thousand dollar monthly payment uh, that was introduced in I think 2004. That didn't go anywhere. Then, then they, there was a um, an, another congressman that wanted to introduce a bill to pay a lump sum payment of I think it was twenty thousand dollars, twenty five thousand dollars for all the uh, surviving merchant mariners, and um, that didn't play out either. So I'm not sure unless another congressman or senator comes forward and presents another bill uh, to try and compensate the surviving merchant mariners, I'm not sure if that's going to go anywhere. It just seems a shame that when Reagan granted veteran status to the merchant mariners in 1988, well, that was 40 years after the war. And most of these men, had they not already passed away, well, they'd already retired. So it wasn't of any use for them. And I, I just feel like they've gotten the short end of the stick for so long. The, the Congressional Medal is, is a recognition, and it's significant recognition. I'm glad to see that 
Congress finally decided upon a design for the medal and appropriated money to produce it, it's good that these surviving men, uh, and I think there's just probably less than 2,000 of them still alive, uh, are awarded with that for, for some kind of recognition for what they did during the war. And even when I read about it on the, the National uh, uh, Maritime Administration's website, that the next of kin can also um, request a duplicate medal. So I wrote a letter to the Maritime Administration asking them if I could get a duplicate medal for my dad's service. He passed away in 2005, but he, like a lot of other merchant mariners, had had participated in the war and had served in every theater of the war. I'm hoping that I will be given that medal. I only wish he was still alive to receive it. That, that would make a big difference. I'm just glad to see that my paper arrived in time, you know, in a, in a period where it can be published and bring a little more of a spotlight on the, the Congressional Medal that these mariners are now being able to receive. So uh, I think it's perfect timing for this to happen. Uh, I just wish it had happened a long time ago, <laughs> years ago. For so a lot more mariners that have passed away, uh, they could have received this same medal. I think it would have meant a lot more, but it, it's better late than never. So to kind of bring this, uh, uh, you know, kind of back around to, to power ships, and, um, you know, obviously you've done uh, quite a bit of uh, writing with us. Any, uh, any words of advice out there for anyone who might be thinking of submitting an article? I think um, if you wanted to do a lot of research, uh, the National Archives, you can request uh, the deck logs for a lot of these ships on different voyages. There might be uh, families that uh, would want to know more about what their fathers had done during the war in the Merchant Marine and where they had gone. And the deck logs from the National Archives is a good, good place to start. Coast Guard, uh, they've got records, uh, uh, the DD-214 records. You can acquire those, uh, and, and that'll give you an idea of uh, the different places that the merchant, you know, their family members have might have sailed to. I just find it interesting the, some of how the other writers come up with the, the ideas for their papers, the, uh, the, photographs, the literature that's available, kind of give you an idea of what it was like back in those days. The, the articles that William Miller, that, to me, that is really extraordinary, the, the information that he has and the photographs that he has. And I know that you're in possession of a lot of these pictures that you can see online or probably request a photograph. And a lot of times it just takes a picture, you know, and it kind of gets you thinking, well, like the Holocaust survivors and how they escaped out of Europe on the, on merchant ships and how difficult it was for them to to get passage and what type of ships were they? You know, uh, what what were the ships? Just keep asking questions. Thanks for tuning in to Ship History Radio. We hope you join us for future visits with the men and women who make Power Ships Magazine possible. 
This episode was produced by the Steamship Historical Society of America. Learn more about our organization and request a free issue of Power Ships at sshsa.org.